Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A troubling story involving a child and substance use has brought up a conversation around naloxone, a life-saving medication, and whether it should be in all schools. More than a week ago, a 13-year-old Hartford student overdosed in school and then died after taking fentanyl. Today, we talked to the superintendent of Hartford Public Schools, Dr. Leslie Torres Rodriguez, about the district's response and support for the community. And later, we also hear from a parent whose son died from an overdose. And we talked to Dr. Craig Allen, medical director at Rushford, a substance use prevention and treatment center, about services for those struggling with opioid use. The need for services has grown over the last two years. We'll talk more about that coming up. Joining us first on Zoom is Dr. Leslie Torres Rodriguez. Again, she's superintendent of Hartford Public Schools. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Our listeners can also join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Torres Rodriguez, you've been an educator for 25 years. How did this child's death and the events leading up to it impact you? You know, this um, is a just unimaginable tragedy. Um, and, you know, the safety and the well-being of our students, our staff, our community matters deeply to me, to all of us. And uh, it's heartbreaking knowing that um, this is something we we didn't expect, and now thinking about how to continue to support our community through this. When you talk about continuing to support the community, and no doubt um, this child's passing impacted his peers uh, and teachers and staff. So can you talk about the steps you've taken uh, to reopen uh, this school uh, since uh, his passing and what you've been hearing from the school community? Yes. Yeah, so um, first, you know, I do want to continue to extend my heart condolences to the family and to the entire community at SMSA, and even broadly, you are absolutely right that when um, we we lose a student and we have a tragedy like this, um, there are deep and wide, right? The ripples um, are deep and wide. And so um, immediately we had to support students with regard to um, just the emotional, um, the counseling, we deployed our crisis team, and that actually um, is an effort that continues, and we will continue to do that as long as we have to. Um, there were pieces that we had to clarify for the community with regard to, um, you know, what exactly did we mean by decontaminating and cleaning a school building, right? These are our learning places and spaces. And so part of our support and response had to include um, a level of understanding uh, as to those technical pieces, which was new to all of us. And then um, determining when the school um, would be safe for reentry and, and coupling that with the emotional and the social 
um, emotional support. And so in addition to in-person and virtual um, uh, counseling and support, by our school social workers and counselors, we also were so fortunate to uh, have our partners on hand at the ready to support with additional um, counseling. And that included, um, you know, telehealth counseling from our partners at Connecticut, uh, Connecticut Children's, for example. We have our therapy dogs that have been at uh, the Sports and Medical Science Academy. Students had a modified reentry so that our staff could have time to process and, and talk to one another um, and then even, you know, create space for staff to, to review how they might um, engage in conversations with students upon the reentry. Um, and so, um, yes, we're focusing on the school, but it's also district wide. And so we were very intentional in even, you know, right after um, we learned of the students passing to extend supports to the entire community by not only having the, the clinic, the clinicians available, but also uh, sharing resources for families. So how do you engage in this conversation with, with, your, with your child? Um, and we continue those supports, for example, at multiple levels of the organization. I will share that this week, for example, even my own team, my, my, my executive cabinet, we will have our, our own um, session, if you will, given that we've not had an opportunity to step back and process what this all has meant for us, um, you know, at an emotional level while we're still, you know, leading our community through this. You mentioned, you know, when we talk about reopening the school, uh, also the decontamination process. And so I wanted to just get some more context, uh, put some more context into the, the, this conversation when you mentioned decontamination, because um, after the child overdosed in school um, and, um, Police and others uh, later determined um, it was uh, because of ingesting fentanyl. Police also say they found 40 bags of fentanyl stashed in the school in different locations. And so can you talk about that? Because it's, it's troubling to hear that this happened to a child, but then the fact that this drug, this poison was in the school. And you know, moving forward, how to keep the school safe from this happening again? Yes, and, and we know that there is no new information to share regarding the status of the criminal investigation. We actually are looking forward to our partners at Hartford Police Department to hopefully share more information with the community in the near future. To your point, um, it is highly concerning to, uh, to us, to our families. Um, and so we know that you know, this was a highly potent, dangerous drug. And yes, 40 bags were found. Um, as to where specifically, we are we are waiting for all of those details. And, you know, as part of that safety plan and the transition plan, we have communicated to our families that we will continue to implement um, additional safety measures. For example, we, we had already um, across the, the district and middle schools and high schools, uh, implemented safety screenings, and that includes uh, bag checks and no-touch wanding of students entering the school during arrival. Um, it is a protocol that was in place um, to do that at least twice a year in our middle and our high schools. Um, and also is this other um, level of awareness, Lucy, to uh, engage in conversations with all with all staff members and with partners and families as to what it is that that um, you know this drug fentanyl could look like, um, what 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 is the impact of it, and how do we have 
ongoing conversations with one another about it and what we can look for from peer to peer, you know, teacher to student, parent to child, um, or, or even staff to staff, um, given, as I have learned, how now prevalent, you know, the um, fentanyl um, is becoming in our communities. When you talk about bag checks and doing those twice a year, is this something that you anticipate will be done more often? Correct. Um, yes, it is a conversation that we have already begun to have in terms of modifying um, our our safety, our, our general safety plan. You know, as I said, these bag checks were something that we implemented um, when we actually um, began um, hearing of, of, you know, on social media threats, right? It's something that we wanted to be proactive about. And so we will continue to, to do those and additional random checks. Um, so you're absolutely um, right with regard to clarifying whether or not this is going to be more. Yes, they are going to um, increase. You're hearing Dr. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez here on Where We Live. She's superintendent of Hartford Public Schools. As we talk to her um, about the steps that are being taken in the school district after uh, this child, this 13-year-old, overdosed uh, while in school about more than a week ago, uh, turned out that he had ingested, this child had ingested uh, fentanyl. Um, If you have questions, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. When we talk about uh, substance use, I mean, this is, uh, it touches every community. And when you talk about um, the community uh, that Hartford Public Schools serves, uh, when you hear about uh, increased use of fentanyl, there's also been a lot of discussions about Narcan and the role that this uh, opioid antidote could play if this were to happen again in schools, tell us about how the district is now approaching having Narcan or Narloxone in school. Yes, we are actually supplying um, Naloxone in, to all schools um, and, and buildings in, in our district immediately. Um, we have never experienced an overdose incident in our schools before, and we hope and pray that it will never happen again. Um, if, if there is even a small chance that an incident like this could occur, um, we want to have naloxone available. I understand that fentanyl is extremely potent and that these overdoses happen uh, very fast and that it might even be difficult to reverse, um, even with multiple doses. Nonetheless, and regardless, we want to have it on hand. And um, just last week, our uh, training had begun. Our, our, our nurses, our health clinic staff, given that we do have uh, six health clinics in, in, our, in our district, school administrators were um, trained um, on one opioid overdose identification response and naloxone administration. Um, and so uh, we are awaiting for our delivery and we'll have it available across all of our schools. I'm glad that you talked about training because it's one thing to have this available, but to have a staff uh, understand and be able to uh, respond to an overdose, to recognize it, that can be challenging. Yeah, I I agree with you. And so we've taken a holistic approach to that understanding. First of all, we are are a learning organization and uh, many of us, myself included, have have done a lot of learning in the last week as to... um, Again, the prevalence, how easily available um, this drug is, um, the, the many forms in which it can show up, and 
um, what it is that we need to do to recognize um, the visual signs, the cues, um, and then where to go. And so from our teachers to our social workers, to our health staff, to our nurses, to administrators, to my central office team, we are um, engaging um, and, and taking a learner stance um, as to this new information for us. And, and we want to do the same with our with our students and with our families. And so we, we have a series of uh, learning opportunities and, and virtual learning opportunities. And, you know, we're looking forward to our, our district-wide, if you will, community forum um, this Tuesday, where we invite our families, our caregivers, and even our community partners to learn along with us as to what are those signs, how can they um, intervene, and where to go for support. Uh, Narcan um, has been um, in the news for some time. I remember back in 2011 when Connecticut passed the Good Samaritan Law uh, to help people um, have access uh, to not be um, arrested by police um, if they're on hand for an overdose. Uh, conversations from families impacted by substance use disorder, by uh, organizations that, that help people struggling uh, with substance use disorder. Why did it take uh, this particular um, incident uh, to have this conversation about having Narcan in all schools, Dr. Torres Rodriguez? You know, it was something that um, was not on, on the radar, quite frankly. And I've had this conversation even with several colleagues, um, superintendents in, in Connecticut, even across my colleagues across the country. And um, wow, what a painful way, what an unfortunate way to have to respond to something. Um, and and I, I also want to lift that while these conversations, as you say, might have been happening, um, like the conversation around naloxone cannot be happen, cannot happen in isolation, right? There are um, there's an intersectionality here around you know substance abuse and mental and behavioral health and um, creating places and spaces, learning places and spaces where students feel you know connected and safe to 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 reach out um, for for anyone in a school community to um, know what to look for, for those that outside of the school community um, interplay and, and serve student and youth. I mean, it is it is broader. I, I, I hear the conversation on naloxone and how important it is to have it, yes, but having having the conversation in isolation um, will, will not do us well. I, this requires a macro systemic approach to addressing um, what is in front of all of us. Uh, with what you just shared, can we talk about the role of peers, you know, how you can um, communicate to other students that it's okay to come forward if they know something that might impact a friend or a classmate without fear that they will get in trouble? Yeah, that is that is an area that we continue to try to drive home with all of our students across all grades. Um, you know, we, we we strongly encourage families and staff to talk to, to children about the serious risks of, of illicit drugs, which may contain right, these dangerous substances. We we encourage students to reach out to counselors, teachers, social workers. We've even put in place um, structures, right? We know that we have the partnership with Sandy Hook Promise and and students can, you know, call and or there's an app even for that. You know, they, they say something. They see something, they say something. We understand that from a developmental perspective and, and, and peer pressure perspective, it might be hard for some students. To my point earlier around creating those safe 
Um, and those relationships, right, for students to feel like they, they are safe in going to someone anonymously or not. Um, and there's also the educational aspect for students as well, right? What what does it mean to, um, to, to see someone and to notice that you have a peer that is showing up differently and, and how to go about um, either extending support or getting getting support. And so it is it is broader, which is why we're infusing it into um, the conversations. And even, you know, we've deployed just last week, we deployed resources for, for teachers and, and school leaders um, to have conversations across all grade levels, right? We're, you know, the way that you have a conversation around substance use or uh, prevention and awareness with a third grader obviously is very, very different than a high schooler. And so we're being very intentional uh, about that as well. But again, all grounded in um, creating places and spaces in which students feel safe um, to, to reach out to someone else and express a concern. You mentioned Sandy Hook Promise, so I understand that your school district is partnering with them to run the Say Something training. So this is for all middle and high school students. Is that right? It is. It it is a partnership that we actually had already started and we had uh, sessions planned for for this week. And we've we've tweaked them a little bit to have a a, a more of an emphasis on um, what what do I need to look for right as a student in my peers? And how can I engage in these conversations um, with my peer and then with an adult about what what I what I'm seeing? You know, is it you know, we want to make sure that students, of course, know who to reach out to. But that if students see or hear about any potential safety issues, drugs, school threats, possible suicide or other concerns that they um, know when and how to tell someone. Yeah, and you mentioned that there's going to be a virtual town hall. I think that's Tuesday night uh, to um, respond uh, to the community. And this child had a family, and I'm wondering, you know, who's supporting them, Dr. Torres Rodriguez? Yes, we have extended our support to our family. Um, again, we are um, holding the family uh, close to our hearts, and we'll continue to do that. Um, and yes, with regard to the um the town halls, you know, we actually started our first one with our uh, Sports and Medical Sciences Academy community. Um, and then we quickly the next morning expanded it to our community partners, knowing that, you know, we have partners in our schools throughout the day before school, after school, providing supports to students and oftentimes to their families um, while during the school day. And so we also wanted them to be aware. Our faith leaders already were trained. And so for families and, and partners, again, on Tuesday, this will focus on substance and opioid identification, awareness, and prevention. How can you have a behaviorally appropriate, an age-appropriate conversation, um, and how um, they can support children and youth through this? Dr. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez is superintendent of Hartford Public Schools. Thank you for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to hear from a Connecticut mother who lost her son from an opioid overdose. And we're going to learn how more people have needed help in the pandemic. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. According to the state, 1,374 people died of an accidental drug overdose in Connecticut in 2020. And more than 8 out of 10 of those deaths were caused by fentanyl. We're talking about this after a 13-year-old Hartford student overdosed and died after taking fentanyl while in school. Now, it's rare to see overdoses among children, but we wanted to talk more about the role of fentanyl in overdose deaths and what can be done to help people who are struggling with substance use disorder. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Craig Allen. He's medical director and vice president of addiction services at Rushford. That's part of Hartford HealthCare. Dr. Allen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. You've been working in this field for some time. Uh, how did you react uh, to the news of this child's death to fentanyl? I've, it's um, it was a terrifying thing. You know, it, it, it's frightening. Um, I, uh, you know, my my thought was at first, um, you know, how could this be? How could this happen? A kid so young. Uh, the statistics nationally show that it's rare for kids this age to be using opioids much more likely to be, if they are engaged with substances, to be using nicotine, vapes, um, marijuana, alcohol. Um, so it was a big, it was a big shock. Um, however, having worked in the field for a long time and seeing the skyrocketing numbers, this epidemic of opioid overdoses we've been seeing in Connecticut and across the country, um, and particularly the numbers, the rise in the opioid overdose deaths in um, the uh, non-Hispanic um, uh, uh, the, the numbers of non-Hispanic whites, uh, the rate had always been highest until until COVID, when um, the rate of opioid overdose deaths uh, of um, uh, non-Hispanic blacks exceeded non-Hispanic whites. And then in 2021, um, almost uh, one and a half times uh, greater than non-Hispanic whites and non-Hispanic blacks. And um, in the Hispanic population for the first time ever, the rate of opioid overdose deaths exceeding that of non-Hispanic whites. Um, I guess we shouldn't be surprised if there's a sea of uh, fentanyl, a sea of opioids in our cities, for some of it to eventually seep into the schools um, should, on, on some level, I guess we should have expected it. Let's talk more about fentanyl. It's a synthetic opioid. I understand it's uh, for severe pain. It's 100 times more potent than morphine. Talk about its role in this 
overdose crisis. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're, for the most part, we're not talking about medical um, fentanyl, although uh, this illicitly made fentanyl coming in from China and from Mexico is as strong. It's not fentanyl being swiped out of um, drugstores, you know, or, or out of people's medicine cabinets. It's stuff that's available on the street. It's really, really inexpensive. Um, it is really, really potent, as you say, and it has uh, been uh, used in other drugs like cocaine. We find people who thought they were using cocaine, who've overdosed on opioids, revived with naloxone. Um, it's been um, uh, put out there in the form of benzodiazepines like Xanax and diazepam, these illicit um pill presses to make it look like opioid analgesics, oxycontin, and, and actually it's, it's fentanyl. And fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than heroin is. Um, fentanyl can make you high like other opioids, that euphoric feeling because of the effect it has on the reward pathway. It also has the analgesic uh, pain killing effect um, on the pain pathways. But unfortunately, all of these opioids also affect the brain stem where our respiratory drive center is located and it suppresses respiratory drive and can impair the body's response to elevated carbon dioxide levels and people can suffer brain injury from lack of oxygen or death. So we have seen the number of fentanyl related opioid overdose deaths skyrocket now over 85% of all opioid uh, deaths are related to fentanyl whereas uh, you know 5 10 years ago it was it was primarily heroin much less expensive ubiquitous everywhere and um and it, it's tragic it's changed the rules it's changed the rules the way we're trying to uh, fight this epidemic people that try it for the first time can die and and that is that is the that is part of the crisis when it comes to adolescents uh, and young adults whose brains, you know, developmentally appropriately, seek out novel new experiences. Historically, may have tried substances like uh, marijuana or alcohol, um, and um, and you know suffered the consequences. Um, but now there's no there's no uh, morning after if. Uh, someone gets into fentanyl, experimentally, developmentally appropriate, trying something new, but they can die. You're hearing Dr. Craig Allen, Medical Director and Vice President of Addiction Services at Rushford, part of Hartford HealthCare, as we talk about fentanyl, the role it plays in uh, the number of accidental overdose deaths that have uh, risen in our country. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Joining us now is a Connecticut mother who lost her son from an opioid overdose. Kelly Fisher is an Enfield resident and she's founder of the Alex Fisher Foundation named after her son. Kelly, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your son, Alex, and, and what happened to him. So Alex was 22 years old. He was graduating UHart and um, he was the best kid ever. He was funny, he was happy. He loved life. He was very, very kind. Um, 
when we had his wake, his friends from UHARP came in and they were saying, oh, I met Alex because I was sitting alone. And he said, don't sit alone. Come on over with us. Just a very, very kind person, um, a great heart. And um, he was 22 years old and his friend from fourth grade gave him an Oxycontin to try and it was laced with fentanyl. And he passed away on that one time. I'm sorry to hear that. That was in 2016. We just heard uh, Dr. Allen talk about the role of fentanyl and how one time, it just takes one time for this to happen. And so that uh, resonates with you, Kelly. Yes. Oh, definitely. One time, that's all it takes. And that's what I try to get to the kids that it only takes one time, one time. It's Russian roulette. Uh, before he died, what did you know about fentanyl? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I know way more than a mom should know about it now. And so you started the Alex Fisher Foundation, named after your son, to help uh, families, to help educate them, as well as uh, to talk to young people. And so can you can you talk more about that and, and some of the, the questions uh, that you've come across and, you know, how the issue, how you've seen it in your local community? Oh, it's prevalent here. Uh, we have a trailer that we take town to town for free. So if anybody needs us, we do it for free. We just don't want another family to ever have to go through what we are. Um, the trailer shows parents where kids would hide uh, drugs and alcohol. We have probably 80 different hiding spots that you would never know. It's hidden in plain sight. Um, we also have opioid goggles. We have a drunk driving cart and you can put on uh, the levels of different levels of drunkenness and drive the cart with that. Um, we also give out scholarships to high school seniors in Enfield. The last two years we gave out $27,000 in scholarships. So we really try to get the kids involved by talking about the drugs and alcohol um, and, and get them to know that there is a, a problem in the town. And it's, it's heartbreaking to read some of the scholarships with what the kids write, what happens in their own families and to their friends. It happens. Mm. So tell me more about that. Um, some of what these young people have shared with you. Um, some say like their father was a drug addict. Their moms were drug addicts. Their uncles were. They lost brothers and sisters. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. They just, they, they, we give the scholarships to kids who we don't necessarily need them to be an A student. We, because we realize if you have issues in your home, you're normally the one taking care of everybody. So you can't always do your homework and you can't always get everything done that you need to get done. You're trying to juggle being the parent in the house as well as going to school. We heard earlier from the Hartford superintendent about the conversations that they're hoping uh, to have with students and, and figuring out, you know, what's age appropriate. And I'm wondering if you can chime in on that, because you are talking to families and the, the role that parents play in this conversation, and how to have it. Sure. Uh, we say talk early and talk often. Um, tell them what you expect from them at a, at a young age. Um, you don't have to go into the drug scene and everything like that, but make sure you tell them what you expect them and how you expect them to behave when they're out because those behaviors 
becomes second nature to them. And they, when they go to do something, they think, oh yeah, my mom won't let me do this. I shouldn't probably do it. Um, it don't talk to them accusatory. You, you have to just have an open dialogue with them right from when they're little, start having that dialogue. Because most of them get on the, on the defense if you start talking to them about this. Um, just really early and often. And I also say, if your kids are at the age where they're going out with their friends, give them a secret signal password to text you. It can be anything from, I forgot to feed the cat to, you know, help and, and just have them that, that will be the, the signal for the parents to come and pick that child up with no questions asked, just come get them and get them out of the, the uncomfortable situation that they're in. You're hearing Kelly Fisher here on Where We Live. She's an Enfield resident, founder of the Alex Fisher Foundation, named after her son who died from an opioid overdose in 2016. Uh, with us also on Zoom is Dr. Craig Allen, Vice President and Medical Director of Addiction Services at Rushford. That's a substance use prevention and treatment center. Uh, Dr. Allen, I wonder if you can respond to what, what Kelly shared about the conversations families should be having. Yeah, um, I, I thought that, that that's a great idea. You know, when you have an older kid, an adolescent, young adult, a way for them to let you know, uh, come pick me up. And I talk with kids too. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist and addiction medicine doc and a parent of a teenager and a young adult. And um, I, I think it's a, it is a great strategy. And I, even with adults, uh, you know, going into difficult situations where they're trying not to uh, imbibe or, or utilize or use a drug, having a plan is really important. And uh, being able to say, hey, my parents, you know, they're really, put on your parents, you know, little institutional transference, as we say in the business. Uh, my parents say, I got to come home. Um, oh, my parents, you know, I, I, I had a, a, a colleague years ago who's uh, had a family history, history of substance use disorder. And, um, you know, that, that is a, a, a big risk factor for kids and adolescents if, who are using substances to, to use and to develop problems is having that, that genetic history. But this colleague uh, said uh, that um, they would test they told their kid and they actually did it they tested them uh for substances and maybe that was a little bit strict but they the idea and i've used that once in a while with some of the kids i work with um i said you know you if you got to tell these guys they're really pressuring you say my parents test me they make me do a urine drug screen when i come home i mean anything you your child would need as a tool in the toolbox to get out of a difficult situation is important so i really i really liked that point um you know and, I, and i'm thinking back to one of the things that um, dr torres rodriguez said that's really important which is um this is about fentanyl but Fentanyl's only a small piece of this. Um, the you know, one of the leading public health problems, if not the leading public health problem in the United States, is adolescent substance use and substance use problems. And um, you know, there's statistic out there: ninety percent of adults who have a substance use disorder started using addictive substances before they were 18 years of age. So that could be nicotine, alcohol, cannabis, um, 96% before the age of 21. 
So it's really important. It's important to talk to your kids, uh, let them know early. And I was on one of these um, calls earlier that uh, one of these forums, Dr. Torres Rodriguez was talking about. And um, the idea of talking to kids as young as five years of age, um, but at that age, you might be saying, um, oh, here's a t- here's medication mommy's taken, dad's taken for a headache. Don't touch this. It's dangerous. We don't want you to have it. So you can start to introduce the idea when they're young. As kids are getting older, you know, you're looking for teachable moments um, with young children, you know, something that was on TV, a character in a book, and you can talk about it that way. Uh, kids get into middle school. What do you know? What have you heard? And then, you know, adolescence, um, what are you seeing? What are the consequences? What are your thoughts about it? And and it's really important. And and I think that Kelly, it, you know, hit this one on the head. You don't want to ask an adolescent a yes or no question unless you want to hear yes or no, because if because they don't want they're going to get out of that conversation with you. You want to have open ended questions opportunities to uh, engage in a conversation and um, create create space for that to happen uh, and let them know your feelings about it. One of the things that, you know, I've heard this for years and I'm, I'm concerned about is um, the idea that cannabis, uh, marijuana, is, um, is safe uh, for everyone. And it's not safe for everyone. There are high risk populations. And one of the highest risk populations are children, adolescents and young adults. Their brains are not fully formed. They are much more uh, vulnerable to using substances um, because of the experimentation factor and the novelty of it, but also to developing problems with those substances. And some of those problems can be lifelong. Mm-hmm. They can affect uh, cognition, attention, motivation, uh, as well as anxiety, depression, and your brain can be primed. Like with those statistics I was mentioning, your brain can be primed uh, going forwards into adulthood to develop substance use disorders. So um, I, I think it's a great opportunity to start talking about how we address substance use and addictive substances with our kids in the schools, in the community, um, so that we, we have a, a healthier a healthier community overall. And kids are at less risk of coming in contact with things like fentanyl and opioids if they're not using some of these other addictive substances. If you're using cannabis and alcohol, you're around other people that are using it or they're getting it for you. And if they're getting you that, they might have access to other things, uh, cocaine, opioids, fentanyl. So it's it all works together. This isn't only about fentanyl. It's not only about naloxone, although that can save your life if you overdose on an opioid. And Good Dr. Morning. Allen, we'll talk more about Narcan right after break. You're hearing Dr. Allen, Vice President of Addiction Services and Medical Director at Rushford, here on the show. Also with mm-hmm. us is Kelly Fisher, who is the founder of the Alex Fisher Foundation. We'll be back after a short break.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the opioid epidemic with my guest, Dr. Craig Allen, Vice President of Addiction Services and Medical Director at Rushford. That's part of Hartford Healthcare. And Kelly Fisher is here, an Enfield resident and founder of the Alex Fisher Foundation. Uh, Dr. Allen, before the break, uh, you mentioned Narcan or Naloxone. Uh, Again, this conversation about uh, this opioid antidote uh, thrust into the spotlight again because of this uh, case uh, within a Hartford school. So let's talk more about naloxone. Uh, And again, in our state, I believe uh, it's up to school districts, local school districts. There's no statewide law that says uh, all schools should have this. Does that concern you? Um, Yeah, yeah, it it does concern me. I think that this is uh, an easy opportunity um, it, it certainly is going to enhance awareness that that this could happen. Um, we've, you know, naloxone. So just to to set the table, naloxone is um, a medication that can be administered with a squeeze in the intranasally in the nose, and uh, naloxone binds to the same receptors that opioids bind to, but it binds stronger and can knock those opioids off those receptors. In the brainstem, that has to do with your respiratory drive system. The If you use this um, with another type of overdose, alcohol, benzos, that it won't work. It won't help you. But it won't hurt you. And this is a safe medication, safer than aspirin, safer than acetaminophen, Tylenol. Um, I We've been working with um, schools and police departments at Rushford for uh, years, you know, four, five, six years now. Um, but it's, it is um, something that um, is determined by the school district whether or not they want to uh, have this in their schools. And because I, I don't know the reasons, but it can be things like the numbers are so low, the risk is so low. But as, um, as the opioid overdose epidemic has continued, and uh, these numbers that you mentioned at the beginning of the show have gone higher and higher, like 14.6% higher than than last year, uh, 2020, then 2019, 2021 is going to be higher yet. Um, it's real important for all parts of uh, the community to have an awareness and have access. You, you, you know, some of us have access to uh, defibrillators and so forth. You're much more likely to come across somebody who has overdosed on an opioid than you are to come across somebody who's had uh, a heart attack. I think defibrillators are really, really important and save lives. And, and so, so does naloxone. It doesn't treat uh, substance misuse. It doesn't treat a substance use disorder, but it keeps someone alive so they can get the care that they need. Kelly Fisher is still with us. Uh, Kelly, in your work uh, in the local community uh, where you live, uh, do people have access to Narcan or Naloxone? Uh, do they they know what it is? Uh, any any challenges or barriers that you've seen in, in getting this in the hands of people that would be helpful? Um, we do have trainings in Enfield with it. At any event that I have, I most likely would have a trainer and someone to hand out the uh, Narcan. I have John Lally from Today I Matter. He is a trainer and he can train in Narcan and Amplify or Mark Jenkins from the Greater Hartford Harm Reduction Coalition also can hand out the naloxone. 
Um, so I do, I do bring them with me a lot of times to different events or they're at events also. Um, we're trying to get it into the schools. Uh, I also think it's important to get into like a mechanical garage where people are working on cars because people most of the time are doing um, the drugs in their car. And if they're going to get a car fixed, any one of those mechanics can touch any, you know, spillage. So I feel that's important too. So I'm, I'm trying to get it into those kind of shops. Dr. Allen, I believe Narcan is available in pharmacies, but, you know, is this expensive? So I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, free access for people who, who need it. Yeah. Um, there's the, it, it can be expensive. You can go, you can ask your primary care doc for a prescription. Most pharmacies have certified pharmacists who can give you the medication if you ask for it and give you the training, but it's going to cost you money. And it can be anywhere, depending on the type of naloxone you're getting, whether it's the nasal brand or it's, it's other forms, it can be from $50 to $150. There's even more expensive uh, forms out there. So it's, it's important to know where you can get it if you don't have that, that kind of money. And as Kelly said, there are these trainings, um, our prevention department at Rushford does trainings um, in um, identifying opioid overdose, administering naloxone, and gives out the free kits. But um, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, on their website, they have a listing of a number of different um, outlets. Um, it, it includes uh, Mark Jenkins, uh, as Kelly mentioned, uh, his work with the Connecticut Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, and uh, places that you can go and get information and actually get the naloxone to use. I, I think the more naloxone we have in the community, the better. Um, the drivers on our vans have it in case somebody gets on the van and may have used. We try to do this training for all of our patients, whether they have a substance use disorder or, or not because we think it is so important to have this medication and this kind of awareness out in the community. Dr. Allen, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to ask you um, to respond. There was a, a story uh, earlier, uh, either this month or last, about a national study published by a team at Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital uh, that shows that uh, roughly 75% of people with substance use disorder three out of every four of them get better and that more than 20 million Americans are living now in recovery. And, and why that's important to talk about when we think about um, substance use disorder, there's so much focus on stigma and maybe people feel hopeless, but a lot of people are recovering and getting better. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's hope is, is important in any uh, aspect of your life. But when it comes to uh, medical uh, disorders, medical illnesses, um, having hope and understanding the facts can it, it be essential. So for substance use disorders, treatment's available, treatment works. I have a lot of my patients who've gone on to do uh, wonderful things and live rich, fulfilling lives. Yet there's this barrier, this uh, stigma uh, and, a, and discrimination that goes along with having a, uh, a substance use disorder or struggling with substances. Um, you know, I, I think that that study is wonderful and needs to be highlighted. Um, 
people do as well in substance use disorder treatment as they do uh, getting their hypertension treated, getting their chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, do as well as uh, someone who's getting treatment for diabetes. So um, it's not this mysterious uh, disorder that's untreatable, um, or you know, you you have to hit rock bottom in order to get help. You have to really want it. You have to really need it. If someone wants some help, there's help available, and it should be available. And um, uh, just like any other medical illness, um, maybe you, it'll take uh, a number of steps before someone can get into full recovery. But anything we can do to reduce the risk, reduce the harms, naloxone's part of that, uh, is really, really important. And uh, we need to start thinking of substance use disorders like we do other medical disorders, other chronic illnesses. Dr. Craig Allen, again, is Vice President of Addiction Services and Medical Director at Rushford. That's a substance use prevention and treatment center, part of Hartford Healthcare. Thank you for your time today, Dr. Allen. Thank you so much for having me on, Lucy. And thank you to Kelly Fisher, who lives in Enfield, founder of the Alex Fisher Foundation. You can learn more about that organization at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Kelly, thank you for your time. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>